let's turn to the Old Testament minor prophet Habakkuk. Can you find that? I'll give you an extra 30 seconds. All right, here's the thing. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk. So that's all the clues I'm giving you. If you can't get it from that, then you got to go in the front index of your Bible and humble yourself. We're going to do something of an overview of Habakkuk tonight. It's only three chapters, but that's still rather long for us to read all of it uh, tonight at a midweek service. But I do want to read a little bit more than I normally would for something like this. So I would like you to follow along as I begin reading in Habakkuk chapter 1. I'm going to read from the first verse down through the first verse of the second chapter. And then that way I'm hoping we can get a pretty good feel for what's going on here. And I'd like to uh, speak from this tonight. So Habakkuk 1.1 says, The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Now, notice he begins to pray. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you look idly why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. God answers. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swift to devour. They all come for violence and all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. All at kings they scoff and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose might is their God. God answers. Habakkuk now has something more to say. Verse 12, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die, O Lord. You have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He that is the wicked brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offering to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury, and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations 
forever. One more verse. I will take, this is Habakkuk now, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. So let's end our reading there and let's have a word of prayer. Father, we are thankful for the Bible. Thank you that the Bible is comprised of such variety and we have these men of God of old and some of them are less familiar to us, but their message is no less needed, nor is it any less potent. And it certainly has great applicability to us here today. So I pray that you would help me to uh, convey some of the thoughts that you have laid upon my heart and make this time to be an encouragement and a help and a blessing to us. For I pray these things in Jesus' holy and wonderful name. Amen. Well, I know in the last three weeks, probably it's true for everyone here, but certainly most people here, we've been very much concerned about Israel and the events that are taking place there. And by those events, we've been reminded once again that we need to be praying for them. And we're kind of reminded that we don't do it as faithfully and consistently as we should, since the Bible really does tell us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem and uh, they shall prosper that love thee, that verse goes on to say so. It, 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 I'm sure it reminds us that we're somewhat remiss in our responsibility. And there's a parallel to that because I think just as we're remiss in our responsibility to remember that as a regular prayer request, we're probably also remiss in praying for our own country. You know, Paul tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that it's God's will that we pray for all who are in authority. And we, we, we often don't do that. And um, so there's a there's quite a parallel here that's really interesting. I want to bring you a little message tonight that, that summarizes some thoughts that I've had in the last few weeks, and I'm, I'm calling this tonight Habakkuk, a patriot praise. Have you ever thought something about the conundrum it is to pray for America? I mean, on the one hand, I think maybe there are three emotions that churn around or three thoughts that churn around when you you entertain this topic of praying for our nation. First of all, our heart mourns for the wickedness that we see on every side. I mean, we're seeing things unprecedented in the history of our nation take place. I mean, not just the typical things that, of wickedness. We're, we're seeing horrible evidences of, of late-stage depravity manifesting itself in this nation. And that that has to be a concern. It has to be a great burden. So we mourn for that because we know that ultimately judgment is going to come. And that's the, that's the next thought, that while we mourn for the wickedness that we see on every hand around us in our country, we dread the judgment that we already know has started in this country and will only get worse, which leads us to the third thing, and that is that we yearn for revival. And when you think about those three things that I've just outlined, that we mourn for the wickedness that we see on every hand, we dread the judgment that we know is certain to come and has already begun to come, and we yearn for revival, that's exactly what you see in the book of Habakkuk. And that's exactly what's going on in the heart of this man who is indeed a patriot, who loves his nation. Think about this question for a moment tonight. Is there anything wrong with being a patriot? No, not really. I mean, I'm sure there are extremes about every particular direction you want to talk about, but certainly nothing wrong with loving America, just as there was nothing wrong with Habakkuk loving his own nation. And there are certainly other examples of this in the Old Testament. 
talk about a couple of those in a moment. But talking about mourning about the, the wickedness that we see on every hand, this is the thing that, that um, he's concerned about. You notice verse number three that we read, why do you make me see iniquity? Well, you can't turn the television set on without seeing it. You can't drive up behind cars with bumper stickers and not see it. I mean, it's just everywhere. And this is what he's lamenting. He's complaining about this. Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you look? This is sort of an accusatory thing in some ways. Why do you look idly at wrong? Why don't you do something is, in essence, what he's saying. Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. And this is, this is how he feels. He, he, he feels himself to be surrounded by all of this stuff that's just disturbing to his spirit. And so he complains about that. And of course, as things go on, he talks about God doing something about this in terms of judging those people, but yet he has mixed emotions about this judgment. More on that in a moment. And of course, he yearns for revival. You know, we don't find the word revival occurring very often in the Bible, only a couple of times, but Habakkuk features one of those. If you turn over and you look at chapter three for a moment, he says here, O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. What is he talking about when he says revive it? Your work? In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. So here are these three things. Mourning about the wickedness that surrounds us on every side. Dreading the judgment that we know it's going to bring on our nation and on his nation. All the while yearning for revival. But Habakkuk was a patriot, so all of these things were really stressful to him and really uh, stirred his heart. Think about other examples of this in the Old Testament, and I'll, I'll give you two. I want to talk about them a little bit more in a moment. But was Jonah a patriot? <laughs> well, he most certainly was, because when God told him to go to the Ninevites, it, it wasn't that he was a racist. But it was more the idea that he, he knew that if he went over there and preached to those people that, and they responded that God would more than likely show mercy to them. And he wasn't real keen on that because you know, they, were the, they were the enemy of the day. They were the superpower enemy of the day. And so he wasn't real keen on that, mostly just because he loved his country and didn't want to see what he knew the Assyrians um, would, would potentially one day bring to his country. What about Jeremiah? Was he a patriot? Well, he definitely was a patriot. I mean, we're talking later now because Jeremiah is sitting right there on the cusps of the judgment of Judah by the Babylonians. In fact, lived to see it and eventually had to go down and was forced to go down into Egypt with those rebellious Israelites that wouldn't stay in the land even after Gedaliah the governor and, and, and the Lord told them through the mouth of Jeremiah to stay and he would watch over them. This was after the rest of them had been deported. And, and so I think that we're going to take this brief journey tonight, look at a heading for each chapter, because I think in, in Habakkuk's journey, I'm going to call it tonight, in his journey of prayer, there's a lot for us to learn as we struggle through trying to figure these things out. How do we pray for America? And looking at how he prayed. Well, first of all, the heading that I want to put over chapter number one is this word, protest. I want to use the word protest, but if you look down at the end of verse 1 of chapter 2, the word that's in the text here is complaint. They're pretty much the same idea, protest or complaint. So I have a question for you tonight. 
you can chew on this from a theological perspective for a moment. Is it ever right to complain? Is it always wrong to complain? And I'm going to give you an answer that might surprise you. No, I don't think so. I think there's some complaining that's justifiable, but there's some that's not. It, it, a little, it goes alike, uh, kind of along the same lines as anger. Anger, not all anger is wrong, but it doesn't take us very long to cross the line, does it? I mean, righteous indignation is one thing, carnal anger is another, and it doesn't take long before you and I cross the line. So whereas we can't just uh, have a, black, a blanket condemnation of, 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 of all anger, because um, Paul says, be angry and sin not, yet there's, there's not a lot of encouragement in the, for us in the Bible to be going around being angry. There's a lot of discouragement because we just usually can't handle that so well. Same thing I think is true of protesting or complaining to God. Is it ever right to complain about things to other people? Is it ever right to complain to God? Because that's what's going on. You've got two major complaints here. First of all, in verses two through four, he's complaining about the wickedness that, that abounds on every side and why isn't God doing something? And then the Lord responds to him and the Lord says, well, you know, I'm gonna show you a work that, that if somebody had just walked up and told you, you wouldn't have believed it, which is typical of God, isn't it? He's always doing things that are above and beyond what we would have envisioned. That's how great he is. And he says, not to worry. This is all going to be dealt with. Just as I raised up the Assyrians to deal with Israel in the north. And that We're talking Habakkuk as later. See, Samaria fell to the, to the Assyrians in 722, but we're looking at it somewhere... 640 or after, right, right as the, the, Babel, or the Assyrians are falling and the Babylonians are rising. And so God says, don't worry, I'm going to deal with these Assyrians. They're going to get theirs. I've got the Babylonians that I'm raising up to do that. Well, then Habakkuk says, well, that doesn't really set too well either. And so he launches into his next complaint about, well, how can you do that? Beginning in verse 12, you're a pure eyes to behold evil. How can you use and how can you raise up an instrument of your judgment who's less righteous than the people that you're sending them against? Well, that's a tough one, isn't it? I mean, you know, I mean, if, if, if we're likening this to something in our day, um, you know, we don't know the future, but, but what if somehow you got the distinct impression, wouldn't be too hard to get this impression, what if you got the distinct impression that God was going to use the Chinese to bring judgment on America? How would that set with you? Not too good. Uh, it would not set real well with me at all. And I, I could see myself reacting a little bit like Habakkuk and the other, Lord, those people are godless communists. And I could see the Lord saying, well, have you been looking at the news lately? Which he wouldn't have to ask me that because I look at it every day. So I, I know what's going on. And he would be right if he said to me, well, you know, you're talking about the person who's more righteous than you. You're more righteous than them. But look what's going on in your own country. So when you look at these complaints, as, as strange as it is, he, he feels that God doesn't hear him. He feels that God doesn't, he feels that God doesn't hear. He feels that God doesn't help. Verse number two, O Lord, o Lord how long shall I cry? God doesn't hear for help. God doesn't help. You will not hear. 
I cry to you violence and you will not save. And so he, he's got these complaints. And it's a moral conundrum for, for him. Both of these things are because on the one hand, he's thinking to himself, okay, is God indifferent to the cry of his child? Is God indifferent to the prayers, to the cry of his child? On the other hand, is God ignoring his own moral values by utilizing the Babylonians to bring judgment on Judah as well as the Assyrians? So that's chapter one. Let's move to chapter two because uh, time's hastening on as well. But okay, over this chapter, we're going to put, put the word patience. You love that word, don't you? How many people love patience? How many people have that gift? <laughs> I mean, that's got to be something supernatural because I know it doesn't come naturally. At least it sure doesn't come naturally to me. And this is what God says to him beginning in verse number two. And the Lord answered. So here's God answering the second complaint. Write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, don't you love this? Wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. You know, the psalmist says, wait on the Lord and be of good courage and he shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Have you ever thought how difficult that is to do? But I find it interesting because I posed that question to you a while ago. Is it ever right to complain? And the interesting thing about it is God doesn't rebuke him for his complaints. So what's the difference? How, how come it is that Jonah, he really got slapped down, right? But on, on the other hand, Jonah was pouty and Jonah was disobedient. Jeremiah... Jeremiah came like about a cat's whisker from calling God a liar. Jeremiah was famous for his complaints. If you're familiar with the book of Jeremiah, let me read this to you so you can, you can kind of gather what I'm telling you about. And the Lord, the, the ESV kind of um, tones this down a little bit, but if you, if you read it and check it out, God, God kind of pops him down on this one. In Jeremiah 15, 18, this is one of his complaints, and he says to God, Why is my pain unceasing, my wound incurable, refusing to be healed? Will you be to me like a deceitful brook? Did you hear the word deceitful? See, he's that close to calling God a liar. Like the waters that fail, and here's what God has to say back to him. Therefore, thus says the Lord. If you return, that is, get right, come back, repent. If you return, I will restore you, and you shall stand before me. If you utter what is precious and not worthless, what did God just say? What you just said was a bunch of trash. You shall be as my mouth. They shall turn to you, but you shall not turn to them. What God's really saying is, get your attitude fixed, and I'll continue to use you. So here you've got two other patriots who complained, Jonah and Jeremiah. The Lord dealt with them fairly stringently, but 
he doesn't have any rebuke for Habakkuk. What's that tell you? Well, I think what it has to tell us is, is that the Lord who knows the hearts knew that Habakkuk's spirit was right. Habakkuk didn't say anything, didn't feel anything in his heart that was wrong. So God goes on to say, to, to tell him what this vision is and what's going to happen. He's complaining about the Babylonians now. And God says, don't worry about the Babylonians. I have, I've, I've got them under control as well. And I, I just want to show you this. What follows where we left off reading in chapter 2, verse 3, are five woes. Now, you know, when you find the word woe in the Bible, W-O-E, it's not because somebody's got a runaway horse. It's because its judgment is imminent in this situation. And so he pronounces five woes that he reveals to Habakkuk about what, what he has in store for the Babylonians. So look in verse 6. I'll just show them to you real quick. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. So we'll stop there because we just don't have the time to do this. But verse number 9. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. Verse number 12, woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Verse 15, woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. And then finally, verse number 19, woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone arise, can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. This is God's answer. It's as much as to tell Habakkuk, I hear you. But I have a purpose with the Babylonians, but I also see what the Babylonians are doing. I know of their wickedness. And in due course, you have to wait. In due course, I will deal with them. And I think this is really instructive for us because, you know, when, when you turn to Isaiah, everybody's familiar with this verse, chapter 55, verse number 8. He, he says, you know, for my ways are not, my, my thoughts are not your thoughts, my ways are not your ways. And it's like, not only is he telling the same thing to Habakkuk, but he's also saying to him, do you ever stop to think about, not only are my thoughts not your thoughts, your, my ways not your ways, my time is not your time. And <laughs> it just seems like we are perpetually in a hurry. And that's just not God's way. God is never in a hurry, but he's always on time. And so God says to him, I, I will deal with the Babylonians, but you just have to realize, Habakkuk, you have to realize, brothers and sisters at community, you have to realize, Tom, that I have more going on than just what you're thinking of because you have tunnel vision. You're thinking of you, you're thinking of Judah. I've got the whole world I'm out here managing. And the Babylonians, 
Well, just think about what God was doing with the Babylonians. I mean, he sent the Jews into captivity for their disobedience. And who are some high-profile names that you can give me right now who were in the court of the king of Babylon? Tell me. Starts with a D, Daniel. He had three friends, right? So what was God doing? He was doing the very same thing he wanted to do through Jonah. He was extending mercy and grace and opportunity to a nation. Are you and I really opposed to that? As much as we don't like the people who are our enemies on the global scene, are we really opposed to God showing mercy to the Chinese? Are we really opposed to God showing mercy to the Russians? I don't think so. But we're caught up in our own little world, but more is going on with God than just our corner. And here's the last chapter. Over chapter 3, we're going to put the word praise. We know that this is what's going on because look at the musical terms. Verse number 1, a prayer of Habakkuk. So prayer continues, but so his, his response is prayer, but it's predominantly a, a prayer of praise because it's Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigionoth. Well, Shigionoth is a musical term, and we know that this is true, not only by the poetry that follows it, but look at the end, the last verse, not the, the, the most of the verse, but at the very end of the verse, to the choir master with stringed instruments. So what happens at the end of this book is that he starts off protesting. God says, hold on. I see what's going on. You just need patience while I work out my purposes, which are bigger than you. And Habakkuk is in such awe of this when he sees this picture that God is presenting to him that he responds with this hymn of praise. He's humbled, verse number two. Oh, Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work, oh, Lord, do I fear when he really sees the awesomeness of God and how far flung God's plans and deliberations are beyond his own, he's humbled by this and he breaks into this, into this um, hymn of praise because God is so awesome. And he realizes God really does plan to deal with the nations. Look at verse 6. He stood and measured the earth. He, lo he looked and shook the nations. There's the word nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered, the everlasting hills sank low. His ways, uh, his were the everlasting ways. Look at verse 12. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. How do you like that for how big and how awesome our God is? Verse 13. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked laying him bare from thigh to neck. And that thought is so awesome. You notice the sila there, which is pause, and just think about that for a moment. But the way this ends, and I just want to read these verses and we'll close, is probably the pinnacle of the book. It's the highlight of the book because this whole thing has taught him, you know, even when I see, days aren't really going to be good in the future for Judah. God's going to send the, the Babylonians and he's going to judge Judah just like he judged Samaria in the north. Adversity is ahead. So now I think about this when I pray for Israel and I realize, okay, I know what I want, but I also know adversity is ahead. And the same is true for America. So look at these verses. Though the fig tree should not blossom, this is adversity, 
nor the fruit beyond the, the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet will I rejoice in the Lord, I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. So it's complicated, isn't it? Praying for America and praying for Israel. It may get worse before it gets better, probably will. But whether we're praying nationally or we're praying personally, this thing of protest, keep your spirit right, patience, letting God work out his ways and his plan, which are generally beyond us, and praise. That's a real formula. I hope that'll be a, some help to us tonight.